0: My name is Kent, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really glad that you're here with us today. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and tell them that. Tell them that you're glad they're here today. Okay, and based on what we just heard from the choir and from Jennifer, turn to your neighbor and say, you're a gift from God. Okay, now turn to your neighbor and say, you're beautiful. Okay, good job. You've already heard our message is going to come from the book of Jeremiah today. Jeremiah chapter 29, so we'd like to invite you to follow along, and you've also heard how to get there. So if you open your Bible up into the middle, you're likely to end up in Psalms or Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, or Jeremiah, okay? Move back to Jeremiah chapter 29, and if you don't have a Bible, you can use the app on your phone and or whatever else you'd like to read on, or if there's a the Bible in the chair, you can grab that, uh, Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29, starting with verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So these are the people that have taken that long journey from their hometown to Babylon. Now they're living there. The next couple verses tell some of the players, some of the people who were involved in this, jump down to verse 4 and get the message. This is the message This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have called you to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is God's word, and it's true, and you can rely on it a priest, a minister, and a rabbi walk into a bar. And after they've had a few drinks, they get into a little bit of a debate about which one of their traditions has the most power to bring about transformation. And after a few more drinks, they decide on this little experiment. Let's see which one of us is best at transforming a bear. So they're going to go into the woods, they're going to find a bear, and they're going to try to transform them. So they decide to do that, and they agree to meet back here in one week to discuss it. So in one week, they gather back together, and they want to explain their experience. The priest goes first. He's a little bit scratched up, but he's excited. He's happy to report. I went, and I found a bear, and I started to teach them the catechism. And the bear would have nothing to do with it, and he came after me. So I grabbed a hold of that bear, wrestled him to the ground, and sprinkled holy water on him. And he became as gentle as a lamb. And next week, the bishop's going to come and give him his first communion. (laughs) The minister went next. He also was a little bit scratched up. He said, I went out and I found a bear, and I started to preach my best sermon from the Word of God. And the bear would have nothing to do with it. So he came after me. So I grabbed the bear, I wrestled him down a hill into a creek And I I baptized his hairy soul. And he became as gentle as a lamb. And the rest of the day we spent praising Jesus. They turned and looked at their rabbi who was in a wheelchair, covered in bandages from head to toe. He had two broken legs and he was missing an arm. And the rabbi looked over at them and said, I wish I hadn't started with circumcision. So somebody introduced me to a guy named Michael Jr., who's a comedian a few years ago. Have any of you ever seen Michael Jr. do his stuff? Okay, he's hilarious. He's interesting because he does comedy, but he also explains what he's doing as he's going. And one of the things that he likes to talk about is he likes to talk about what comedy is. He says comedy is basically a setup and a punchline. So first of all, I set you up by moving you in a certain direction. You're expecting a certain thing. And then I change directions, and that's the punchline, and that's what makes you laugh. So a horse goes into a bar. That's the setup. And the bartender says, why the long face? Okay, now if you don't laugh, it's because it was a bad joke, (laughs) or I'm telling it to the wrong audience, because to get that joke, you have to understand something about what a horse looks like, and you have to also understand something about this... Role of bartenders to listen to people when they're discouraged. If you don't get that, you don't get the setup in Punchline. Michael Jr. goes on to explain that really all of life might be like a setup in Punchline. And so I thought I might try that experiment by doing today's sermon as a setup in a Punchline. And actually, we've been working on the setup for many weeks. We started the setup weeks ago when we started talking about Adam and Eve and about God's plan to rescue them after they had been kicked out of the garden. And then we looked at God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made a covenant to them. He promised to deliver them a blessing and to through them that they would be a blessing to all people. And then we continued to see the setup with Moses and Joshua leading the people. And then we saw the setup with Samuel and Saul and David and last week with Solomon, seeing how God has continued to reach out to his people, that no matter how many times God's people turn their back on God, God continues to reach out to them. That no matter how many times God's people break their promises, God continues to keep his promises. This is all part of the setup. And we've seen after this week after week after week that God is not going to turn his back on his people. No matter how messy the story gets, God is still going to be there. Now today, the story has taken an even uh, greater turn toward a mess. Um, If we fill in the gap between Solomon and Jeremiah, we get this part of the story. Last week, Solomon was told, because you have turned your back on God, there's going to be trouble that's going to come, and this nation which has been united is going to be divided into two. There's going to be the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And if you follow that piece of history, you find that just about every king that comes after Solomon is wicked. In fact, many of the kings are more wicked than the king that came before them. And it just gets to be worse and worse and worse until finally God has to start sending these prophets who are warning the people, if you continue on this track of wickedness, there's going to be punishment that comes from outside the nation. You're going to be conquered and captured and taken into captivity. This is what God has warned them about. Now, when we get to the prophet Jeremiah, this prophecy has come true. Now the people are facing some really difficult times. Now, every time a prophet has come, they have had a kind of a basic message. Now, if you could summarize them or lump them all up into one message, I would summarize it like this. The prophets come and they tell the people, you're in trouble. And there's usually a whole bunch of reasons why the people are in trouble. And then the prophet usually says something like, but God will deliver you. And then usually the prophet has a whole bunch of stuff to say about expe- exactly what that, pro- that deliverance would look like. Maybe that deliverance is going to look like um, a miracle from God. God's going to intervene in miraculous ways to deliver them. Maybe that uh, intervention of God looks like smiting all of your enemies. God's going to come and he's going to take care of your enemies. for. Maybe that intervention from God, that rescue, looks like it's going to be um, deliverance and rescue from these people. The prophets have announced this time and time again. This is the setup to the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah comes to the people, and the people have to have their ears kind of perked up now. I wonder what Jeremiah is going to say to us. Because all the prophets who come before us have said this, God's going to rescue you. So they're ready to hear this. Now, Jeremiah was talking to the people who actually are already in exile at this time. They've already been carted away to Babylon. People in exile are usually people who have been like banished to a foreign country. They've been left there, and there's like great consequences for them if they try to leave. They are expected to kind of assimilate into this new country. Exiled people live in this foreign land and they're usually outsiders. They they don't know the people, they don't know the language, they don't know the culture, they don't know anything about what's going on there. They have one desire. If you're in exile, you have one desire. You want to go home. That's what you want. So Jeremiah is writing to these people living in exile in Babylon, and they have a burning question for Jeremiah. How long before we get to go home? That's what they want to know. How long before this humiliation of being stuck in this awful place ends? How long Do we have to put up with these foreign customs, these foreign practices that are, many of them, repulsive to them? How long do we have to keep our faith in the middle of a pagan country, in the middle of people who are antagonistic to our faith? How long do we have to live with these disgusting Babylonians? That's the question that the people have. How long before we can go home? How long before God rescues us that's what they want to know and so they turn to they turn to jeremiah and they go okay how long and here's the answer from god this is what the lord almighty the god of israel says to all those who were carried from jerusalem to babylon build houses settle down plant gardens eat what they produce marry and have your sons and daughters marry Find wives for your sons and daughters and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. That's the punchline. You're not going anywhere. You're going to be here a while. Because it takes a while to build a house, to plant a garden, and then actually eat the produce from that garden to get married and not just you, but your children and your children's children get married. Have children, grandchildren, settle in. And I'm imagining that the people who heard this the first time were wondering if Jeremiah was joking. Are you kidding me? This is not the kind of rescue that we were anticipating. We would like to go home now. Hey, Jeremiah, call out to God, tell him we're in trouble, and then tell us when God will rescue us. Set up. Settle in. You're not going anywhere. Punchline, And the people have to go, are you joking? But he wasn't. He was serious. You're going to be here and this is no joke. And then God adds this to the message. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you. Now, the word peace in this passage is the word shalom. Maybe you've heard that before. That's a whole lot bigger idea than what we normally think of peace. Shalom has to do with wholeness with everything being set right with absolute flourishing with prosperity i think some of the translations use welfare that this is seek the welfare seek what is best for the people in the city where you are living seek their good and pray to the lord for it because if they prosper you too will prosper pray for the people of babylon because if they prosper, you prosper. And they have to wonder, are you joking? Is this another part of is it? It's a punchline, right? Pray for the evil people of Babylon. I mean, these people personified wickedness to God's people. This was like the worst possible thing for them to hear. God, are you calling us as your people to love those who conquered us? Is God asking his exiled people to do what is best for the city of Babylon, for the people of Babylon? Is that what God's really asking? This message from God through Jeremiah finishes with a little bit of a warning because there were some other prophets who were there who were claiming to be prophets saying, hey, this is the message we have from God. And what their message was, was, hey, don't settle in because you're going to go home soon. And basically, God says they're lying to you. You're not going anywhere. You're going to be there a while. Have you ever felt like you were in exile, living in exile? Sometimes people describe the church today as being in exile, that Christians living in our current world find themselves surrounded by kind of hostile in, uh, people, hostile environments, because the world doesn't really... Like embrace our values anymore. They don't seem to like even respect our values or our perspective. So the, sometimes the church feels like like it's living in the middle of a foreign culture. Like we're strangers and aliens. Like we're outsiders. Have you ever felt that way? I know I have some time. And so then I wonder, what am I supposed to do if I was in exile? What is the church? What are we all supposed to do if we are living in exile? And there has been three typical responses to this question of how to live in exile. And the three responses have been apathy, animosity, and imitation. Now apathy works like this. God's people live in the middle of a world that seems hostile, but they just have isolated themselves from it. They just don't care. They don't really care to see uh, improvement or changes or anything. Usually people who are living like this live in kind of their own little community. We'll take care of ourselves, and we'll keep doing the good thing for us that we feel like we're called to do, but we're not going to do good for anyone else. They live kind of isolated lives. Apathy, that's one response. Another response, and I, I kind of actually grew up with this apath- apathetic response a little bit in my home and in my, the church I grew up in, we, you know thought of the world as being bad, like bears, or maybe like wolves, and we were sheep. So we're living like sheep among wolves, and so we pretty much want to keep to ourselves, and we're kind of apathetic about any suffering that the wolves have to endure. We just want to take care of ourselves. And sometimes that shifted to this kind of second approach, which is um, animosity, Sometimes when we're living like this, we feel like, well, they're wicked people. We're good, and they're bad. So maybe God's going to get them. Maybe God should get them because they're evil, because they're wicked, and because they have oppressed us, because they have captured us, because we have to live this. And our posture in this, either apathetic or uh, being an- angry toward the world, is to kind of be isolated, to be separate. We don't really want to risk becoming contaminated by their... we it, evil by their wickedness so we're going to isolate ourselves and become kind of alone we're right and they're wrong and that attitude pretty much guarantees that we will remain isolated from the, the world from the culture from our city animosity means that we're against the city and then there's one more approach that some have adapted and that's this to imitate the world or to imitate the city and the thinking behind this is this that maybe if we looked more like the world and acted more like the world and thought more like the world and behaved more like the world, then maybe we would become more attractive to the world. So we're going to adjust our values and our behaviors to look a lot more like the world. You can hear immediately what the challenge is in this position because when we start to imitate, pretty soon a line gets crossed and you start to go, well, then how are we even different than the world? We're the same as them. And then we lose sight of this call to renew the world or transform the world or change the world. So that is a challenging place to be. Do you ever find yourself in one of these three postures of being apathetic about the problems in the world or being angry about it and kind of hating the world for its evil, wicked position or imitating it, becoming just like it? Do you ever feel yourself drawn toward one of those? I know I do from time to time. The people of God in the setup so far as we've looked at the story in the Old Testament, they have been predominantly in one category. They've been in animosity. And if you followed it all from the beginning of the story of God's people, they were set apart, and that was really important. And whenever they have an encounter with someone who's not them, it's usually a battle. There's a war, there's all kinds of smiting that goes on because they're in uh, opposition to us. This has been the general... Posture, and this is the setup for Jeremiah, which makes Jeremiah's punchline all the more striking. Pray for the peace and prosperity of the city. Pray to the Lord, for if it prospers, you prosper. Is he kidding? Is this a joke? If the world around us prospers, we prosper? I can hear kind of nervous laughter whenever this is brought to the people and they wonder. But it's no joke. And God told them exactly how to do it. Build houses, plant gardens, get married. That's how you're going to prosper. And don't decrease, increase. Become a greater influence. Become a greater people. God wants them to make a difference in the world in which they're living. He wants them to transform Babylon. And he wants them to do it by living there and being for the city. Now, historically, we know something about Babylon and how they tried to conquer people. This is what they would do they would go to the uh, enemy and they would transport them from their hometown and bring them to Babylon. And then they would give them good jobs, they would give them homes in good neighborhoods, they would help them feel really comfortable, they would make it so that they liked being in Babylon. And after a generation or maybe two generations, the people that they had conquered would no longer be thinking about going home. They'd be like, we like Babylon. We want to be here. We're Babylonians. I mean, ultimately their goal was within a couple generations to get everyone they conquered to go, we are Babylonians and we love being here. We want to be just like this. They tried the same strategy on God's people. And if you want to read some more details about how that gets played out, I invite you to go home today and read the book of Daniel. Daniel lays right over the top of the book of Jeremiah and there you see Daniel was a Jew. He gets brought into Babylon and he actually gets brought into the king's court. He gets brought into the government of Babylon and then they try to like change his diet. Well, we want you to enjoy the same foods we do. You go read that and see what you discover about his accepting that diet. And then they also say, we don't want you to pray to your God anymore. We got a bunch of other gods you can pray to if you want to pray. Don't pray to your own God. Um... They wanted to try to immerse everyone in their system so that they adapted to it. God tells the Israelites, No, no, that's not what you're going to do. You're going to stay my people. You're going to stay distinct. You're going to continue to be practicing your faith and growing in your faith and growing and increasing in faith. And at the same time, you're going to love the city that you're in. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Keep growing in your faith. Keep growing stronger. But at the same time, work for the peace of the city, the prosperity of the city. Work for what is good for everyone. Work for the shalom of everyone. God didn't want them to hate the Babylonians, He wanted them to love the Babylonians. God didn't want them to escape from Babylon. Not at this time. He wanted them to dwell in Babylon. He wanted them to stay there and seek what was best for everyone, even those who had been their enemies who had conquered them. Seek the welfare of the city. Seek the flourishing. Seek shalom. That's the punchline of Jeremiah. Now, when I was dwelling in this word this week, I started to notice a little shift in me. And the shift that I started to notice was this. I started wondering... If I am more interested in what I get from living in my community or what I give back to my community. Because, you know, we are blessed to live here. And we're blessed to live in this nation. And we have many gifts, we have many things. And I find myself often um, very pleased with what I have. And I've got a beautiful home and a wonderful family, and I've got all kinds of nice stuff. I've, I'm. Blessed financially. I've got all these gifts. And I'm often thinking, how do I get a little bit more? And how do I keep the stuff that I have safe? I'm wondering about what I give. When I started to read these passages, it changed my thinking. I started to wonder, well, am I supposed to be giving back? And not just as a good citizen of this country, but as a Christian, am I supposed to be giving back to the flourishing of my city, to the flourishing of my neighborhood? To the flourishing of my neighbors? Now, if we're honest, we all recognize this. We are gifted. We are blessed people. We're blessed as a church. We have lots of resources. We have a lot of blessings. We have lots of talents. Our church has a lot. Are we supposed to be setting ourselves up to keep getting more and more and more? Just keep building the setup? Or are we supposed to find our punchline? which is how do i give back? How do i seek the flourishing of the city? How do i seek the blessing of the city? And i wonder if this is a question that we all have to wrestle with. What's my own punchline? How do i bring social flourishing or artistic flourishing or moral flourishing or more justice or more health or more better education? How do i bring these things for the good of all, for the good of our city? That's what i started to think about when i was listening to this word of the lord spoken through jeremiah when i dwelt in this word. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And then that also led me to another passage on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine to others that they may see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. So I'd like to invite us to dwell on these words for a few more minutes. And I want you to hear it from the guy who I heard it from first. His name is Michael Jr. And I borrowed all this stuff from the setup and punchline from him. And he has a little kind of summary about what that might mean for us. And so I'd like to have you watch this video and continue to dwell in these passages.
1: People ask me all the time, Michael, what was your big break? Our next guest has performed on Comedy Central's Premium Blend. He made his first appearance on The Tonight Show from Montreal Comedy Festival. You've seen him on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. That wasn't a big break. The big break was at a club and right before I got on stage I had a change in mindset about comedy. Normally when a comedian gets on stage, he wants to get laughs from people. And I felt a little shift take place where I felt like I was to go up there and give them an opportunity to laugh. Now I'm not looking to take. I'm looking for an opportunity to give. This changed everything. My name is Michael Jr. I'm going to do some jokes. And ultrasounds come in color now which is ridiculous. I know it's a black baby. It better be a black baby. I leave the club that night and there's all these people giving me hugs and high fives, telling me their favorite jokes. Then I look across the street and I saw a homeless guy. And I thought to myself, what about him? Most comedy, most jokes are set up. My son, a four years old, looks at me out of nowhere. He says, Dad, I want to be a doctor.
0: I was like, yes, yes.
1: And then a punchline. Then he said, or a dinosaur. I understand that me doing comedy and doing all of these TV shows and making all these people laugh is really just a setup. My punchline is to make laughter commonplace in uncommon places. We go to Montrose, Colorado, a place called the Dolphin House. They take care of children who have been abused by their parents. And this grandmother explains to me that her um, grandson is being abused by his mom. He's so afraid of his mom that everywhere he goes, he wears a Spider-Man costume. So I get on stage, sitting right up front, Spider-Man. I start doing comedy. People start laughing, slowly but surely. Probably about 25 minutes into it, I hear a voice And the voice says, my name is Ronan. And this little boy pulls off his mask. And it was one of the most powerful moments in my entire comedy career. If we could just stop asking the question, what could I get for myself? And start asking the question, what can I give from myself? I think people would learn that you don't have to be a comedian to deliver a punchline really what I want to get across to people and I think I just did